don't leave home without dot 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 how would you how would you finish that sentence don't leave home without your driver's license don't leave home without your mobile phone don't leave home without a credit card growing up my mum used to tell me quite regularly actually to not leave home without my common sense uh, when I was at school, she also used to tell me to never leave home without a handkerchief. Uh, I was never quite convinced of that, especially on days I wore long sleeve shirts. They didn't seem all that necessary. <laughs> but what do you reckon you shouldn't leave home without? What, what do you think are the necessities? Today's Bible passage is all about necessities. It's about the necessity of Jesus. And in particular, you don't want to leave this life without him. For example, did you notice the last couple of verses in our passage? Verse 11. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. Did you notice the necessity of Jesus in those, ver- in those verses? If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. If you don't, you don't have life. He is a must-have. Look up at verse 5 as well. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, did you hear the necessity of Jesus there? Who is it that overcomes the world? We'll get to what that actually means in a moment. But who is it? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you will overcome the world. If you don't, you won't. Jesus is not just a nicety in life. He is a necessity for life. That's what this morning's all about. The necessity of Jesus, both in terms of this victory in the world and also eternal life after it. Mind you, before we get to those two things, John himself builds up to them by firstly giving us a bit of a summary of lots of the things he's already told us in the letter so far. Look at the first three verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, verse 1. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. This is love for God, to keep his commands and his commands are not burdensome. Now, if the Apostle John was ever to release a greatest hits CD of 1 John, these three verses would be the playlist. That's because being born of God, loving God, loving each other, keeping God's... These are all things that John has already mentioned several times already. And they all get mentioned again here, partly because John is now... We're into the last chapter, so he's pulling all the threads together. But it's also partly because of the way 1 John is written as a letter. Last week I mentioned that reading 1 John is a bit like climbing a spiral staircase and looking at the windows as you go up the staircase. There's a sense in which you keep looking out at the same view, it's just that you're now looking out at it from a slightly different angle, a slightly higher perspective as you go up each new flight of stairs. That's 1 John. John returns to the same topics time and time again in the letter, but each time he does he adds a new flight of stairs. He's added a new perspective. The first flight of stairs we went up in the letter was that God is light. Remember that? 
And we looked at the windows of obeying God and loving each other and believing that Jesus is the Christ. And we saw that each one of those things was quite consistent with following this God who is light. And therefore, having those things in your life shows that you indeed follow the God who is light and you have eternal life. The next flight of stairs that John took us up was that God has lavished his love upon us and made us his children. And from that vantage point, the windows of loving each other and obeying God and believing Jesus is in the cross, they took on a whole new perspective. All those things are now seen to be family traits of being one of God's children. And therefore, we have even greater assurance that we have eternal life. And then John took us up another flight of stairs that God is love. And so last Sunday, we had this amazing vantage point to again look out the loving one another window and see that when we do that, it's actually the God who is love in us working, completing his love in us. And friends, this morning, it's as if we've reached the top of the staircase and all the things that we've already looked out at before are again being pointed out, only now, instead of looking out separate windows, we now have this uninterrupted 360-degree view in which everything is now seamlessly running into each other. It's almost hard to tell where one stops and the other starts. Verse 1, believing in Jesus, is again connected with being born of God and loving God and loving his children. And verse 2, loving each other, is again connected with obeying God's commands because loving each other is one of his commands. And verse 3, it's again about loving God and doing... It's all these same things that we've already seen lots of different times. But now they're just all running into each other and you, you almost can't separate one from the other. And it's also enmeshed and connected. And John is showing us this. And he wants us to appreciate this view from the top where everything is so connected so that we might understand how crucial Jesus is to the whole thing. It's a bit like those big displays that you sometimes see on the telly, you know, where they put up all these dominoes and they flick the first one over and so one domino falls against the next, the next, the next, against the next. Well, that's like the sort of stuff that he's been talking about here in the letter, being born of God and obeying God and loving one another and believing Jesus is the Christ. Uh, All the things he's shown us, in, uh, reminded us of again in verses 1 to 3, they're all cascading against each other. They're all dependent one on the other. But John is showing us this because he wants us to know that, that Jesus is the equivalent of that first domino. If it doesn't fall over, nothing happens. That's Jesus. As he's already reminded us several times in the letter, it's Jesus' death on the cross that gives us new birth. It's Jesus' death on the cross that purifies us of all sin. It's Jesus' death on the cross that shows us God's love for us. It's Jesus' death on the cross that shows us how we are to love one another. It's Jesus' death on the cross that sets the whole thing in motion. It all depends on him. And therefore, in this view from the top, John now wants us to appreciate the necessity of Jesus and he describes it in terms of victory in this world and eternal life after it. Firstly, it's this victory. Verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Now, I probably need to pause there because uh, if you're reading an NIV like I am, it's not a very good translation. Okay, that sounds as if, verse 4 sounds as if this is a victory that overcomes both the world and our faith. 
That's not what John's getting at at all. If you've got an ESV, it does a much better job. It says, this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. In other words, our faith in Jesus is the victory. And here's the punchline. Who's got this victory? Verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Only he who believes that Jesus... Only he who... Are you hearing the necessity of Jesus again? Mind you, what is this victory? What does it mean to overcome the world? In the context of 1 John, I think it means two related things. Firstly, it means to have resisted the world. All the way through 1 John, he has described the world as a place that is opposed to God, that is hostile to his children. You know that. You feel that. John has described the world as listening to the spirit of the Antichrist. The world denies that Jesus is the Son of God and therefore fails to recognise that those who follow Jesus are the children of God. In fact, John's told his readers to not be surprised that the world hates them. You know that. You feel that at times. But belief that Jesus is the Christ, that's a victory in the world, you see, because it's a resistance against the world's pressure. Belief in Jesus shows, verse 1, that you are born of God, and it, therefore you're not tricked by this world. Belief in Jesus shows, verse 1, you're, you're born of God, and therefore you see through the seduction and all the flashing lights of this world, you realise that Jesus is important, despite what the world out there keeps telling us. That's a victory. You've resisted the world because you're born of God. But there's a second way in which belief in Jesus involves victory. And given where this passage is going to take us, I think this is the more important one. And that is that victory and overcoming the world here is referring to how those born of God will outlast this world. Because despite how permanent and fixed and impressive this world might seem, John has actually told us that it's a very transient place. Back in chapter 2, verse 17, John told us that this world and its desires will pass away, but the man of God lives forever. In other words, the person who believes that Jesus is the Christ, if that's you, if you're sitting there believing that Jesus is the Christ, verse 1 has already reminded us that you're born of God, which means that as God's beloved child, you have eternal life. You will live long after this fleeting anti-God world has disappeared. And I think it's in this sense of victory, this, that of outlasting the world, that John's primarily got in mind here because... From this thought, he now moves on to describe the necessity of Jesus for eternal life. And this is where we reach that climactic verse of the passage, if not the entire letter. Arguably the punchline of the entire letter of 1 John, verse 12. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Friends, that is a massive truth. Physically look at the verse. Make sure this is one you've got straight in your mind. He who has the Son has life. If you don't, you don't have life. That is a huge verse. If you're into memory verses, I don't think you can go past memorising this one. It's a little unfortunate, though, that before we get to this 
wonderfully crystal clear verse 12, it's a little unfortunate that from verse 5 onwards, we've actually got to get through some of the most confusing verses in the Bible. Verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it's the testimony of God, which he has given about his Son. Okay, now... These are notoriously difficult verses. There is no shortage of different opinions as to what it means that Jesus came by water and blood and how these sorts of things, along with the Spirit, testify about Jesus. It is confusing. Let me suggest a way forward here. Neither water nor blood get mentioned anywhere else in 1 John. So unfortunately, the letter itself doesn't provide too many clues about what John might be getting at here. However, when something is confusing in 1 John, I want to suggest to you that John's gospel is the best place to go to try and sort it out. That's because a lot of the things that John talks about in 1 John, loving one another, God being light, the world hating us, They all turn up in his gospel as well. There's a lot of strong links between 1 John and John's gospel. So, is there anywhere in John's gospel that talks about water and blood and testifying to anything about Jesus? Surprise, surprise, there is. In John's description of Jesus' crucifixion in John chapter 19... He records how one of the soldiers stuck a spear into Jesus' side, he's the only one who records it, to check that Jesus was really dead and water and blood flowed out. And then John goes on to make quite a big thing of it by describing it as a true testimony about Jesus and how the testimony of the soldier is true. Let me read to you a bit from John 19, verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies that you may also believe. John, in his gospel, wants us to know for sure that Jesus died on the cross. And it sounds as if that's also what he's writing about here in this morning's passage with all this stuff about water and blood and testimony. Jesus died on the cross. The water and the blood testify to it. The human testimony of the soldier is true. And if that's not enough, in verse 6, John also mentions that God's spirit testifies to it as well. And God's into truth. He doesn't lie. Jesus really died. I think that's the point that he's getting at in these difficult verses doesn't answer all the problems with them, I get that, but it certainly fits with where he's going to pop out at the end of it, all about how eternal life is only in the Son, because it's really important that Jesus really died. It shows he can really give life. Jesus' real death on the cross shows that his resurrection isn't a con job, do you see? 
Jesus coming back to life is not a party trick. Jesus didn't pretend to be dead and then hid for three days and then jumped out to pretend that he'd risen from the dead. Jesus died. And on the third day, his cold, white corpse started to breathe again. And the importance of that event is almost impossible to overstate. He died. He actually can give new life because he came back to life. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who doesn't have the son of God does not have life. We're back at the necessity of Jesus again, aren't we? Because Jesus and he alone conquered death. And therefore Jesus and he alone can give us eternal life. And that is the crucial fact that John wants ringing in our ears this morning. It's almost as if this is why he's taking us up the staircase of one John in the first place. This is why everything has been working towards. Jesus and he alone gives life. If you have Jesus, you have eternal life. Because you may have noticed in today's passage, there are no commands in it. Okay, This is not one of those parts of the Bible that actually tells us to do anything. It's one of the parts of the Bible that simply tells us the way things are. This is a reality-checked check passage. This is a passage that tells us what things matter and what things don't. It's telling us Jesus matters. A lot. And it's good to be reminded of that sometimes. One of Sue's sisters worked as a flight attendant for a while and uh, she was once telling us about how nobody ever pays attention on aeroplanes when they run through the safety instructions at the start of the flight. That as they go through, you know, the stuff like where the exit doors are and all that, so everyone's too cool to be paying attention to that. So they're either looking out the window or they're reading their newspaper or they're, they're doing some sort of work because they're so important. And the one exception Chris said was when a bunch of school kids was on the flight and it was pretty obviously their first time in an aeroplane. And so she's going through all the procedures of where the exit doors are and uh, when the oxygen masks will come down. And, and all these, they are totally transfixed. Okay, eyes wide open, hanging off every word she says. So much so that when Chris said that they'd be flying over water and so under their seats there's a safety vest, every single head disappeared as they looked down to double check that there was a vest underneath their seat. Chris said it made a smile at the time, but at the, time, at the same time, she also thought, these guys actually get it. This is important stuff. This is life and death stuff. When the plane's about to hit the water, that's not the time to be asking the flight attendant, would you mind repeating what you said about those safety vests? And John is drawing his letter to a close by telling us, hey, all this stuff I've been talking about for the last few chapters uh, about Jesus, all this stuff about God lavishing his love on us with Jesus so that we can be his children, which is why we obey him and why we love him, it matters. It's actually life and death stuff. He who has the Son has life. He who doesn't have the Son doesn't.
You understand that, don't you? That's why you're meeting with others to read the Bible, isn't it? That's why you're getting along to a growth group. That's why you come along here, ready to engage your mind and work hard at understanding the Bible. Maybe even making some notes. Because even when a passage is a tricky one, no, it's all about overcoming the world and blood and water and testimony and stuff. We don't let our minds wander. Because we don't want to just tinker around the edges of our Bibles, do we? We want to get into it and understand what God says about Jesus as best we can. Because he who has the Son has life. And he who doesn't, doesn't have life. And that's why we are ruthless at cutting away all those sins and all those distractions and all those pastimes and all those desires that threaten to take us from Jesus. Because anything that might entangle us or trip us up or slow us down with Jesus, we want to pull them out by the roots. Because he who has the Son has life. But if you don't have the Son, you won't. And that's why we're so keen to help each other stay loyal to Jesus. And so even when we don't feel like it, we make the phone calls. We have people over. We get to small group. We catch up over coffee. We come here to our Sunday meetings. And we walk through those doors ready to do work. We come here ready on the lookout for anyone we might be able to encourage and spur on to love and good deeds because we don't want any of us to fall away from Jesus because he who has the Son has life. And if you don't, you don't have life. And all those people at our work and our schools and all those people we rub shoulders with every day of the week our neighbours and our friends and the people we regularly see, but who don't yet know Jesus, we do whatever it takes to help them know Jesus. Some people spend more time in their garden and in their sheds rather than with their neighbours helping them to hear about Jesus. But that's not us. Because he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. You feel the force of that reality check, don't you? Jesus, he's actually not just important, he's essential. I'll pray. Father, thank you for loving us enough to again remind us of the necessity of Jesus in our lives. Father, thank you that in him we have life. Thank you that he truly died and truly came back to life so that we might see that he can give eternal life. And we thank you that through him and his death on the cross we have been born again, that you have made us your children. Father, we pray that by your word and spirit we would be so gripped by the essentialness of Jesus, that our lives would revolve around it as we seek to stay loyal to Jesus ourselves, as we seek to help each other here stay loyal to Jesus, 
and as we help our neighbours become loyal to Jesus. Amen.